Why didn't we listen? This is far worse than anyone could have imagined. The hour of judgment has come. Cornerstone. Man, good to see you today. Super, super glad that you guys are here. Just want to say hi to our Santan campus and our Scottsdale campus fans. So glad you guys are part of this. I think you're going to be in for a blast. This is uh, the fourth Sunday. It's the wrap-up of our Revelation series together. And I think you're going to be encouraged. I think you're going to be nudged in your life. I think it's going to be a good, good day together. Before we do that, though, I just want to take a moment and just kind of a little bit of family talk. You probably figured out we're having a struggle trying to get our financing done for our buildings. The reason we're struggling, it's not, we, guys, it's not because we don't qualify. It's not because uh, we don't have the resources or the payments too big. Uh, the reason we're having a hard time is because of the size of the church and trying to find an agency that will loan the type of money we need uh, to this size of a church. You realize Cornerstone is one three hundredth of one percent in its size in the churches in the nation. And so going out and finding a, a group that's ever loaned a loan to a church, they just haven't. And so it's just a completely new conversation where I'm to go to groups of people who've never loaned to a church before and say, hey, would you get in for the first time? You know, would you see what God's doing? Would you hop on board and do this? And so it, it's just been, it's been an interesting process. It's been a challenging process. But here's the thing I do want to say, guys, you've been great. I mean, we went, we came after you for the Thanksgiving offering. You guys rose up and did that. We talked to you about re-engaging on purple chairs and somebody that had committed, recommitted, and some people who had never committed before. You got in and got, guys, you just, you've been amazing. And I just want to say thank you for doing that. And especially right now, as we are trying to go out and qualify, the first thing they ask is, let's see how your giving is. So your faithfulness right now is so critical. But I just want to say to you, thank you, because we're able to take them good books and set them in front of people and say, hey, look, see, our people are being faithful, they're giving, come on and do this with us. But here's the thing you need to hear me say, we're going to get this done. We're going to get it done. Yeah. And guys... Let, let, me, let me just say why, okay? You, you get that this isn't about trying to be bigger, and it's not, it's not what it's about. When Jesus left this earth, he gave two commands to us, and they are simply this. He said, go tell everybody you can possibly tell the story of me, and ask them to make a decision. Ask them to accept me as Lord and Savior, and do that as often as you can, as much as you can, and, and win as many people as you can, and then once they make that decision, then help them grow up. Help them to mature. Help them to live lives that don't look like their neighbors, but instead look like me. And so that people would see the followers of Jesus and not wonder if anything had ever happened, but instead would look at our lives and go, man, that is a person radically changed by God because of how they live. That's the commission of the church. And guys, you get that God, for whatever reason, has favored us and something amazing is happening in this place. We have a, guys, think about this. We have a 745 service, 745 in the morning service. How dumb is that? 
There are Christians getting up in the dark, waking up their kids and getting them ready in the dark to come to church. I mean, that's just crazy, right? Last hour, uh, we said in this room, we did overflow last hour. This hour, guys, we're in this room. We've overflowed, overflow. We've got seats sitting at the back. I don't know what, guys, last week, we, after we overflowed the seats at the back, we put people in our volunteer central room, which is bad because it smells like a junior high locker room, and we had people in there. And then, guys, you ready for it? We turned people away last Sunday. How crazy is that for a church to say to somebody, you came to hear about Jesus, we're sorry, we don't have room for you, go home. It's just, it's just a horrible answer. I'm just going to tell you, it's not our answer, and that's why we're going to get this thing done, we're going to figure it out at some point, and we're, you know, we're just going to be the little church that could, or the big church that could. We're going to be that church, and we're going to get it done, we're going we're to get there. And so I'm just going to ask you to pray, I'm going to ask you to stay faithful to this, and, and we're just, we're going to, when, when we get to the other side of this, we're all going to stand up and say, man, God is good, okay? So that, that's the plan from here. Here's what I want us to do. I want you to, you can, that's okay. All right, I want you to stand, and let's pray, because pray. Prayer is a big deal, guys, and we just need to say, God, there's somebody out there who needs to join us in this project, and, and then we're going to go get it. We're going to get this thing done. Let's pray. Hey, dear Lord Jesus, you know our hearts. You know that the absolute ache to build buildings has nothing to do with being able to take head counts or stand up and brag to anybody about the size of our church. It has everything to do with loving Chandler and loving Awatuki, and loving Scottsdale, and loving Santan, and just saying there are more people who need to know our Jesus, and we are not going to be the church that turns people away because all the seats are filled. And so we choose, we choose to just make more room for people to come and figure out Jesus in this room with us. So God, would you honor that? Would you bring just someone who will step up to the loan and give us the loan and give us the opportunity to build these buildings. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right, all right, so we're diving back into the Revelation series. <clears throat> um, we're going to talk about some really interesting stuff. We're going to talk about the millennial reign. It's a thousand-year period in which Jesus actually sets up his kingdom here on earth. I mean, how cool is that? Uh, and then we're going to talk about a thing called the white throne judgment, a moment when men and women stand in front of God and give an account uh, for their lives. And then we're going to talk about a separate judgment that's a judgment for Christians uh, that's going to happen. And guys, I'm just going to tell you, I think you're going to be nudged. I think you're going to be challenged. I think you're going to be intrigued by some of the stuff we talked about today. Now, here's the deal. Some people haven't been in the room. This is your first week. Or some people have missed a couple of weeks. So let me get us all caught up as close as I can so that it all makes sense and then we'll dive right on in. So, uh, what we've talked about so far is this amazing event that we call the rapture. It's a moment in which Jesus comes down. He does not come to earth. The Bible describes it as Jesus meets us in the clouds. Uh, and then he calls out of this world every single person who's a Christian and alive during that moment. It's an interesting thing that Scripture describes. It just says, look, every person who's living here who is a Christian, and then all the children who are underage and don't have the capacity to make their own decision, are instantly caught up with Jesus and go to heaven. It's, it's just an intriguing moment in Scripture. Now, here's what I mean when I say every single Christian during this moment. I'm not saying somebody who's religious. I'm not saying somebody who was baptized when they were a baby. I'm not saying somebody who prays. I, those are all nice things. Those things don't make you a Christian. Even if you've got a family Bible in your home, it doesn't make you a Christian. 
A Christian is someone who has intentionally made their own decision about Jesus Christ. They've said, I believe this stuff and I am in. And I've decided that for myself. See this helps. You can believe in airplanes, but the truth is you don't really believe until you get in one, sit down, and put on the belt. Right? You can say, I believe in airplanes, but spend your entire life on the ground watching them fly by and never be in one. And you can spend your entire life being religious and never be in Jesus because you've never actually stepped in and said, I believe this stuff for myself. I'm sitting strap on the seatbelt in faith. Okay? That's a Christian. And so you have to make that decision personally. Your parents can't do it for you. The church can't do it for you. You got to do it for you. This moment is a trigger moment. In other words, it is the next big thing that's going to happen. And when that happens, when the rapture happens, it triggers everything else. Everything else in the book of Revelation starts to fall like dominoes the minute this occurs, the minute Christians are taken out of this world. It immediately begins a period of time that we call the tribulation, which is seven years. And it's interesting because Scripture says it's a good thing that it's only seven years because if it was longer, the world couldn't survive the judgments that are poured out during the tribulation. Now, here's what's happening. The tribulation is a moment in which God is taking this world and giving them a spanking. It's as if God has said, look, 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 time's running out. And I've tried everything else. I've tried being long-suffering. I've tried being kind. I've tried kind of nudging my way into your life. I've tried having friends come and talk. I've tried everything else, and you're still unwilling to accept me. So as a last-ditch, look, I'm just going to put you over my knee. I'm like a parent spanking a child, and my hope is this, that your heart will break, that your will will soften, and you'll finally say, okay, God, I'm done fighting you. I'm done and that you'll finally come to me. It's the tribulation period. It's interesting because the first three and a half years, this early part of the tribulation period, um, Antichrist is not in control. You know, we always talk about tribulation, we always think Antichrist is already in full power. He's not. Matter of fact, he actually doesn't come to full power until somewhere around the middle of the tribulation. The early things that happen in the tribulation, all are things that can kind of be explained naturally. Uh, there's earthquakes. Uh, there's famine, there's all sorts of disease, uh, there's some meteors that hit the earth during that period. And so you can go, oh, hey, no, I get it. I mean, it's just all kind of, you know, global warming finally caught up with us, and the earth is going through convulsions, and the economy is failing, but it all has the ability to be explained away. I believe it's those very events that are happening are the things that help Antichrist rise to power, that he's going to be the guy in the room with the best ideas. He's going to be the guy in the room that says, hey, let's do this, 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 and there's going to be the appearance that what he advises works. And so people are going to go, hey, I mean, this, this guy has got some answers, and that will facilitate his rise to world power. And somewhere around the middle, three and a half years of the tribulation, he will finally secure his place as world ruler in that moment. It's interesting because almost immediately he turns on Christians. Almost immediately he says, we got to get rid of these radical religious people in the world. And it's pretty easy to guess what happens. Remember, all the Christians got taken out here, but you and I are going to have friends and family and people that are left that have heard the story. They're going to start reading their Bibles for the first time, and they're going to start converting to Christ. 
And so when they see Antichrist take world power, they're going to know exactly who he is. They're going to go, whoa, 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 whoa. This is exactly what the Bible said. He's Antichrist. Don't follow him. Don't follow him. And out of absolute anger and angst, he will then turn everybody against the Christians. It's going to feel something probably like it did in Germany when the hearts of the German people turned against the Jews during world. They're going to be the scapegoat for all the problems, all the unrest. It'll be the Christians who are the problem. And the Bible tells us that literally millions upon millions of Christians will lose their lives during this period of time. Uh, the mark of the beast happens. Everybody, no one can buy or sell unless they have the mark of the beast. Uh, the one world church gets set up during this period of time. It's going to be a church that says, hey, we don't care what you worship. You can, there's hundreds of ways to get to God. It doesn't matter how you express yourself as long as it's not Jesus as Savior. But any other way you want to get to God works. And then the judgments of God begin to come that you can't explain away as natural causes. It's really, really clear that God's doing something. All of a sudden, Antichrist's plans are falling apart, and, all, and the countries of the world decide, hey, you're not all that you said you were, and so now the countries of the world try to take the world over, so it becomes Armageddon, becomes World War III, and uh, in that very moment is the second coming. It's the second coming because in this moment, Jesus actually comes to the earth. Remember in the first coming, Jesus came born as a child, grew up on the earth, had as he was physically here on earth. In the rapture, he doesn't come to earth, but in the second coming, he will come again. This time, though, he comes in judgment. The first time he came with promise, this time he comes with punishment. And in this moment, it's interesting because the Bible says that all the armies of the world are going to turn. Remember they were fighting the battle of Armageddon? They now turn their guns on Jesus. How crazy is that? I mean, you're shooting missiles at Jesus? Good luck with that. I'm just, I'm just saying. Good luck with that because uh, it's not going to work. And Jesus comes back. And in this moment, we said to you that the second coming in many ways is the rapture in reverse. Remember the rapture, Christians leave unbelievers stay. In the second coming, unbelievers are taken and they die. Christians, people who have believed on Jesus during the tribulation and have lived to the end, are the ones who stay. Okay? Which brings us now to what the Bible describes as the millennial reign. A thousand-year reign of Jesus here on the earth. Grab your Bibles, we'll go there, we'll take a look at what happens during this period of time. It's the book of Revelation, it's chapter 20, uh, it's real easy, this is about as far back as you're going to go in your Bible, this is almost the last chapter of the Bible, it's Revelation chapter 20, and it describes this thousand year period uh, here on the earth. Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 1, here's what it says. And I saw an angel come down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, and we know that every time Revelation talks about the dragon, it's always a reference to Satan. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, and he locked and he sealed it over him, 
to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw the thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the Word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. When the thousand years is over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations on the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand of the seashore. They marched against the breath of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay, so interesting thing. Uh, in this moment, um, Satan is bound for a thousand years. So during this period of time, there's no temptation, right? So Satan's not there to tempt. As best we understand, there's probably no sin uh, going on in the earth. And the people who have survived the tribulation, believing in Jesus, are now living during this millennial period, this thousand years here on the earth. And they're marrying, and they're having children, and their children are having children, and their children's children are having children. And as best we can tell, nobody is dying during the thousand years. Do you remember the part of the passage said, and hey, here was this person, and they reigned, and they reigned the entire thousand years. So as best we can tell, sin and death have both been removed during that thousand year period. Now, here's the interesting thing. Uh, the thousand years gets over, and Satan gets loosed. And Satan comes back to this crowd and says, you don't want to follow God. You, you don't want to have this guy ruling over you. Are you kidding me? You, you want to have your own options. You want to have your own ideas. Follow me, and I will free you from the tyrannical reign of God. And the Bible says, the number of people who choose to follow Satan during this period of time and actually rebel against God is more than can be numbered. Now, I'm just going to tell you, when I hear that, I end up with two questions immediately. Question number one, why? Why does God let Satan loose again? I mean, he has him bound. Why in the world is this necessary for him to have this kind of last hurrah, this last-ditch effort to sway the hearts of men and women. What, why? I'm guessing now. Okay, I, I don't know this answer, and Scripture doesn't tell us this answer, but this is my best guess at the answer. If you watch the chronicle of history, it is a story of God trying to get our attention any way He can. So when you go all the way back to the story of Adam and Eve, when God first starts out, He says, okay, Adam, Eve, you're the parents, it's your job to tell your children about me, and then it's your children's job to tell their children, and it's your children's children's job to tell their children about me, and family was the first institution set up to carry the story of God 
And the problem is we failed. So then God came back and said, okay, I'll tell you what we'll do. We're going to install governments. And it'll be government's responsibility to have godly laws that, that mirror and, and enforce the laws of God. And governments are going to be responsible to make sure the message and the governments failed. And then God says, okay, well, here's what we do. I'm going to pick one nation out of all the nations to be my nation. And the hope is, as I bless and I work through the one nation, all the rest of the nations will be jealous of the one nation, and they'll come and follow me because they'll see what it means to be blessed of God. And it didn't work. And then God said, okay, even within that nation, we're struggling to figure this out, so I'll send you judges. I'll send men and women who are there to keep you on the right path. And it didn't work. He said, okay, I'll give you kings. And so there's this whole period in which there's kings in Israel, and it didn't work. And says, okay, I'll send you prophets. So there's this whole period of time when God speaks through a one chosen person. They have the words of God, and they didn't listen. And then Jesus comes and dies on the cross and starts an amazing thing called the church. And he says to the church, you go tell everybody. And can I just be really, really honest and tell you it's not working real well? I think, I think the millennium is God's answer to anybody who would say, you know, if I had been Adam, if I had been in the Garden of Eden and sin had been absent and life had been perfect and you would have been present, God, I would have chosen different than Adam. And God says, okay, so let's try that. And then you have the millennial reign, sin is absent, their environment is perfect, and the Bible says, and still millions upon millions turn away. And so then God says, even then. And so God can stand before us and say, I've tried everything to reach you. Second question. Why did they do it? Why did they rebel? I mean, if you're living on a perfect earth and if you're living in the presence of Jesus and sin is gone and disease is gone and no one's, I mean, why would you ever turn away from that? Why would you ever rebel in that moment? Isn't the answer that there's some part of us that always wants to be the boss of us? I remember when you were a little kid, you said to your parents, you're not the boss of me. Remember? And then they applied the hand of instruction to the seat of your understanding. Remember that moment? And then you got to be a teenager and you're in school and you were saying to all the, anyone that was in authority, you're not the boss of me and I'm going to live my life my way. And then many of us got into the workforce and there is no supervisor, there is no manager that's smart enough to lead you because you're going to be the boss of you. And isn't it true that the reason many of us have struggled with Jesus Christ is that although we've come to faith in Jesus Christ, we still struggle to let anybody be the boss of us. This shouldn't surprise us. It is us. No one's going to be the boss of me. It's interesting because the millennium uh, then comes to an end uh, right here. And the Bible says that the next event is something called the white throne judgment. So that's a throne. Could you tell that? No, no. If you squint, if you squint, you can almost see Jesus on the throne. Just, right there. 
The Bible calls it the great white throne. Matter of fact, grab your Bibles. You'll see why we call it the great white throne. It's uh, Revelation uh, chapter 20. We're at where we were. Next few verses starting in verse 11. All right, here we go. Here's what it says. Then I saw a great white throne. That's where we got the name. Okay? Uh, And him who was seated on it, the earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. So think about this moment. It's saying, so there's a throne in heaven, this, this massive white throne. God is sitting on the throne, and the presence of God is so awe-inspiring, so overwhelming, that it's as if the earth wanted to flee away and hide from his absolute holiness, his absolute power, his absolute righteousness was almost too much to bear. Verse 12, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had. What's the next word? Done. As recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life, was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, there's an interesting guest list for the white throne judgment. So I'm going to list for us the people that are going to be there and be present at the white throne judgment, but I want you to watch, if you will, for who's not at the white throne judgment, because it's interesting. Okay, so here's who we know are going to be there. Old Testament saints will be at the white throne judgment. So everybody who lived from Adam all the way up until the time of the cross will all be at the white throne judgment. And guys, we call them saints because any person who's put their faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible refers to as a saint. Because, 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 you ready? Because their sins are forgiven. Which means you don't have to be canonized, nobody has to take a vote, and you don't have to do any miracles to be a saint. Ladies, if your husband knows Jesus, he's a saint. I know that's hard to believe, but he's a saint, okay? Because the blood of Jesus has been applied to his life. So every single person in the Old Testament who put their faith in Jesus is a saint. And I go, whoa, 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 Lynn. Old Testament people didn't know about Jesus. How could you say that Old Testament people put their faith in Jesus? Old Testament people put their faith in the Lamb, Remember, every single year they bring a lamb and they say, God, here's the deal. I know that the lamb has to die for me. And I know that one day you'll provide the lamb who will take away the sin of the world. When Jesus comes to the earth and at the very beginning of his ministry, he goes walking up to John the Baptist. And do you remember what John the Baptist immediately said when he saw Jesus? Behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Old Testament saints, although they didn't know the name of Jesus, knew that the Lamb was coming, and they put their faith in the Lamb who would one day hang on a cross. You and I simply have the privilege of looking back to the cross and knowing that it was Jesus. The other people that are going to be at the great white throne are tribulation saints. 
Okay, so everybody who went through the tribulation and put their faith in Jesus Christ, okay, they're all going to be at the great white throne. And then finally, millennial saints. So in other words, everybody who lived during that thousand-year reign that we just talked about and put their faith in Jesus and held true to that, they'll all be there. And then one last group. You ready? Non-believers throughout all of history. So people all the way from the time of Adam all the way up until the end who refused, refused, refused to believe on Jesus. Every person who said, no, 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 I don't need God, I don't want God, I'm fine without God, every non-believer is going to end up at the white throne judgment. Okay, so that's the invitation list. Now, here's the interesting thing. The Bible then goes on to describe the white throne judgment and says, hey, uh, each person's going to be called up. Hey, Tim Johnson, come on up. And Tim will walk up. And then it says, and they're going to give an account of how they live their life, of everything they've ever done. And so all of a sudden, their whole life's going to get revealed. And I don't know, I mean, is it going to be like a massive screen right there in heaven? And then all of a sudden, they just push play. And every single lie goes up on the screen. And we're not talking the abbreviated, we're talking the whole thing. And, and, and every single lustful thought up on the screen, ladies. Remember when she was walking away and you went, she's so tacky. It's going to be on the screen. It's going to be on the screen. You thought you got away with it. It's on the screen. When you looked at porn, the porn's going to be on screen. How uncomfortable is that? And you go, what, what, what? God's going to show it all. Yeah, he's going to show it all. He's going to show every single bit of it. Everything I thought, everything I imagined, everything I did when I slept with my girlfriend, everything. And you go, why? Why would God do that? Because. When you talk to your friends, when you talk to your neighbors and your coworkers, and you say to them, hey, are you going to heaven? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm going to heaven. Well, how do you know you're going to heaven? Because I'm a good person. And so God will say, okay, here we go. Let's just run the film. And guys, I, I, don't, I don't know about you, but I, I've got a feeling that you're not going to have to get very far in the film, that people seeing the just absolute darkness of how they've lived. I think you're only going to get a few minutes in, they're going to go, Look, I get it, I get it, I get it, I get it. When I stand here in this moment in front of an absolutely righteous, I get it, I am not good. And some angel's going to go, hey, well, wait a minute, we haven't got to your teen years yet. I mean, that was just adolescence. And there won't be one person standing before God saying, hey, I'm good enough for heaven. That argument will be dashed. I, I got a feeling you get a couple hundred people in, and I've got a feeling people will walk up and go, no, 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 forget the video. I, I, I'm on this side. I get it. Because it'll get real apparent real quick. Here's another interesting thing in the passage. You realize the passage says, 
for every person who has to stand in that moment and doesn't have the name of Jesus to claim who has never made this decision. The passage says hell is a real place. Let me read it again. It's it's verse 14. Here's what it says. It says, Then death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life, anyone who hadn't accepted Jesus as Savior, was thrown into the lake of fire. And I, I get it. I get some of us go, I just, I don't understand. I mean, how, how can a loving God do that? I thought God loved us. And he did. He does. Why do you think he sent Jesus? Why do you think he gave you and me the opportunity to change the verdict? But you and I, re- or not, hopefully not you and I, but people rejected it. And what you forget and what we forget is is that that same God who is loving and kind and gracious is also 100% righteous and holy, and sin cannot be in his presence. It's why Jesus was the solution for the sin, and we neglected it. And whether, whether or not you like the answer or not, whether you go, boy, if I were God, I wouldn't have hell, I just like, it doesn't matter. In about three months, we're all going to pay taxes. And I don't know about you, but if I were president, I wouldn't have taxes. Here's the problem. I'm not president. And even if you sit in this moment and go, boy, if I were God, I wouldn't have hell. It doesn't matter. You're not God. And God here is telling us how it works, whether we like it or not. And it's a real place. Which then leaves you and I with an unbelievably big question. How many friends, how many neighbors, how many co-workers, how many relatives do you have who are counting on making it to heaven by being good? And who's going to have the courage to tell them it's a bad plan? There's a second judgment. And, and did you catch me? I said, hey, look, look on here and figure out who's not on the list. Guess who's not on the list at the white throne? Guess who didn't get an invitation? You and me. Anybody who has named the name of Jesus, any Christian, uh, we call it the church. The church isn't at the white throne judgment. We're not even present there. Why? Because the white throne judgment was a judgment of deeds. You and I have already had our sins covered by the blood of Jesus. There's no reason for us to have a video. Because there's nothing on the video. Because Jesus already paid for it all. Now, can I just say to you, this bothers me a little bit. Because there's some Christians out there who've done some really crummy things to me. And I'm just thinking, boy, it'd be really fun if we got to heaven and God would just expose them. Just expose them for all the crummy things you did to me. And I could just for a moment go, yeah, right? But here's the deal. If they have to go on the screen, then I'd have to go on the screen. And I'll just be honest with you. There's stuff I don't want on the screen. So I am thankful, thankful, thankful that there's a different judgment for Christians. 
Okay? It's interesting. Rapture, trib, millennium, second coming. This judgment takes place while you and I are in heaven during the tribulation. It's called the Bema Seat of Christ. And we know that it takes place while we're in heaven because the Bible describes that when Jesus comes back in the second coming, you and I come back with him and we've already received all our rewards. So this judgment happens while the tribulation's going on. So let's, let's go to a passage and read about this judgment. It's 1 Corinthians. And guys, I'm just telling you, if you don't get anything else out of it, this is the best news you're going to get all day, is that your and my judgment is different than the great white throne. It's 1 Corinthians. If you're not familiar, go to the back of your Bible, work to the left. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And it describes this judgment that we call the Bema Seat of Christ. The judgment for Christians, okay? Bema Seat of Christ. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It starts in verse 11. Here's what it says. For no one can lay any other foundation than the one that is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So you get what he's saying? He's saying, look, 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 look. If you're going to build your life, don't build it on the things that everybody else builds it on. You build your life on Jesus because that's the only way to make your life count. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, and costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. So get the moment. You say, look, look, look. Everything we do that we claim was a good thing, something we did for the kingdom, it's all going to be taken in that day. It's going to be tried as if it was by fire. And guys, is it literal? I don't know. Probably not, right? But it's just saying, hey, it, it's, it's going to be like that. And a lot of the things that you and I did are going to turn out to be just wood, hay, and straw. The reality is they're going to hit the flame, and it's, it's just not going to matter because it didn't count for eternity. But some of what we did is going to be gold, silver, and precious stone, and all of a sudden it comes out the other side because it was done for the name and the glory of Jesus Christ. And that will matter for eternity. And then it says, if it is burned up, verse 15, uh, if it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved even though only as one escaping from the flames. So you hear what I'm saying? Look, look, there's going to be some Christians standing on that day, and when they begin to put into the flames everything they've done with their life, everything burns up. Because they didn't do anything that was really eternal or really for Jesus. And it says, they're still going to go to heaven because they knew Jesus as their Savior, but it's as if they're going to go to heaven smelling of smoke. They barely made it across, right? So here we come to this moment that says all of our works are going to get tried. So let's think about that for a second. When you go on vacation, when you go to Jamaica and you spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars going to Jamaica, sipping margaritas on the beach, and one day when you stand in front of Jesus and he puts it in the flame, does Jamaica come out the other side? See, there's some husbands in the room right now. 
you're going, the only reason I went to Jamaica was for my wife. Which means I was loving my wife the way that Jesus loves the church. So I'm thinking a little bit of Jamaica ought to come out of the other side. That's what I'm thinking. That's what I'm thinking. For the most part, does Jamaica come out the other side? And guys, look, 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 look. This is not me saying you can't do nice things, can't have nice I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. I, I've got nice things, okay? I got an Apple Watch, which makes me more cool than you. But it, it's okay to have nice, all I'm saying is this. Jesus is asking us to evaluate because he's saying, look, as you live your life, as you have your resources of time and talent, it's all going to go in the fire. And you want some of it to make it to the other side. So if you are wise, you're going to calculate what you're doing in your life to make sure some of it gets to the other side. And it's okay. You buy the newest and greatest car. All the intelligent backup stuff, the car parks itself. <laughs> car make it to the other side? That car doesn't even make it five years with you, right? <laughs> You're trading it in. Last 24 hours. Last 24 hours of your life. How much of it made it to the other side? You want the good news? This hour counts. You got one hour made it to the other side. You're in good shape. But isn't that a great question? How many hours in the last week made it to the other side? What about your money? How much of your money actually makes it to the other side? When, by the time you get done paying electric bills, by the time you get done paying mortgages, by the time you get done paying car bills, by the time, how much of your money actually matters for the kingdom? That you would stand in front of Jesus and say, man, that was just such a great decision. Thank you for doing that for me. How much of our money? I'm getting ready to do taxes this year. Can I just encourage you when you do taxes this year while you're looking for deductions? Look for investments. Look for moments you can circle on your spreadsheet and go, that was kingdom. Hey, when you tithe, does that make it to the other side? Come on, this is easy. Yes. When you give to Haruma, does that make it to the other side? When the church stands up here and says, man, let's go feed some lepers in the name of Jesus, does that make it to the other side? Yeah. When you serve, when you say, man, I am so busy, I don't have any time, but you decide to serve, does the time you spend working with teenagers or working in the children's area or going out on the parking lot, does that time go to the other side? When you join a Bible study, and say, man, I'm going to take an hour out of my week and I'm going to learn about Jesus more and I'm going to study Scripture more so I can live better for God. Does that make it to the other side? You know what I think is interesting? How many times have you come to church and you go, oh, fuck. All those guys ever want, 
money and time. That's all they do. You know, Lynn's up there, and they give me more, give me more, give me more. Serve more, serve more, serve more. Go to Bible study, go to... See, somewhere, somewhere, guys, 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 somewhere you're going to have to figure this out. Because either the church is just the most selfish organization in the world, and we're just here to take advantage of you, or we get this, and every single appeal that we've ever given you was done in love to say to you, do something with your life that gets to the other side. Guys, can I just say this? When I get to heaven, when I get to heaven and I'm standing in front of G, I want a big old pile. I want a pile that's like I can't even see over. I want to be standing in front of Jesus and someone's going, wow, what did that guy do? And I I want to be able to say to Jesus, well, here's the deal, look. I didn't do this for me. I mean, thank you for the reward and thank you for the, but I I did all of this out of love and Jesus, you take it because I I did this for you. You want to hear the crazy part about it? Is that even when we throw it at the feet of Jesus, he won't take it. He'll say, no, I promised you I would reward you. I promised you that if you lived for me, it would matter in heaven. That's yours. And I'm just saying at the end of the day, I don't want to be the guy standing there with nothing. But guys, here's what ought to thrill you. You and I still hopefully have some time. You and I, by just making a couple simple adjustments in our lives, could start pushing a whole bunch of stuff through the fire. You and I could change what this looks like. We could start serving a little more and giving a little more, praying a little more studying a little, and all of a sudden, bigger portions of our lives matter. And guys, it's okay. It's okay to have the car, and it's okay to have the vacation. Just be sure you know how much you're burning up and how much you're getting to the kingdom. Let's pray. Hey, dear Lord Jesus, we, we simply come to the moment. And God, we just want to say out loud, We know. We know there'll be the day that we stand before you and we we give an account of our lives. Some of us in this room have still not made a decision for Jesus. And if we keep putting it off, we'll stand one day at a white throne looking at a movie screen displaying every part of our lives, convincing ourselves that we really aren't good. God, I pray for anybody in this room who hasn't figured out Jesus yet, that today would be the day. They just say, man, I I need a savior. (laughs) Because good enough isn't gonna cut it in eternity. God, I pray for Christians in this room, that God, we would live wise lives. And God, you you don't care if we've got great cars, you don't care if we take fantastic vacations, you just care that we leverage a significant part of our lives to the kingdom to the other side that we stand in front of you just thrilled and proud of how we've lived our lives. And God, here's my prayer, that one day the people of Cornerstone will stand in heaven and people will be surprised at the piles because we chose to live so much of our lives for you. 
In this we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.